0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, April 13th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. Why has fear of terrorism persisted so long and so substantially after 9-11? John Mueller is co-author of a new Cato report, Public Opinion and Counterterrorism Policy. We spoke this week about fear, behavior, and government overreaction to the specter of terrorist plots. When we look at polls about what the public thinks about uh, terrorism, you know, or in general, any topic, really, you see that you can go a certain amount of depth in people's opinions before certain contradictions start to emerge. Are there clear contradictions about how Americans think about terrorism?
1: Well, I don't know if you want to call it a contradiction, but there is uh, sort of a surprising uh, development. Um, that's quite surprising to me when I started looking into this uh, there's been almost no change in Americans' attitudes toward terrorism since 9 eleven uh, despite the fact of course there haven't been any big attacks of that sort uh, that um, you know the number of people being killed is about six per year since 9 eleven by Islamist uh, terrorists and so forth uh, but if you look for example right after 9 eleven, uh, they asked the question, do you think there'll be another large attack killing large numbers of Americans in the next in the near future? And 72 percent said they thought it was likely. That number hasn't really changed at all. It, bounce, it bounces around a little bit with events. But the last time was asked, it was asked is still about 72 percent, 71 percent. And uh, what I did uh, and my co-author Mark Stewart, as uh, we looked at a whole bunch of trend lines on terrorism since 9-11— and that's the general uh, pr- uh, conclusion. Uh, and on some questions, there's a drop or a change from 9-11 to the end of 2001. Uh, but then it, uh, it hasn't changed uh, much at all since that time. Other questions like the one I just mentioned haven't changed at all in any sense since 9-11. So it's, it's, it's rather puzzling because you would have expected – the I mean, obviously you expect the numbers to be high at, after the initial shock of 9-11. But what we're finding is that, uh, that even when that shock presumably has mellowed at least somewhat uh, and when officials and the press are paying at least somewhat less attention to the issue and when bin Laden has been you know, cashiered um, and when there has been very little terrorism in the developed world uh, compared to what, what the fears were certainly in 9-11, you would expect some sort of erosion and it simply hasn't happened.
0: So what do we know about people's revealed preferences with respect to uh, terrorism? I mean, are, are people, if their expectations are high that these events are going to occur at some point in the future, is there, is there some behavioral change that we ought to observe? Yeah, there, there
1: doesn't seem to be uh, necessarily all the big a connection between that and beha- behavior. I mean after 9-11, of course, there's a big fear about getting on airplanes and that died out in a couple of years. Uh, and you don't see people worried necessarily about their personal safety particularly. Even before and after 9-11, if you ask just a bland question, uh, it doesn't mention terrorism, but do you, do you, how do you feel um, about your personal safety, f- freedom from a violent attack? And it, it basically didn't change much at all at 9-11. So it's not, and of course, property values didn't plummet in New York or Washington, uh, after 9/11 either. Um, so behavioral uh, um, effects seem to be uh, less than uh, they haven't been you know, huge. People have sort of taken it in their stride in that sense. They, they go back, you know they still go to baseball games and stuff like that, though they frequently are profess more worry about it before, beforehand. Uh, one of the things we sort of found though is that this is not so much about terrorism. It's about is, is international terrorism or Islamist terrorism. Um, there, fortunately some of the questions go back to 1995. 1995 was the Timothy McVeigh attack uh, on the uh, 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 government center in Oklahoma City. And at that time, uh, people became, of course, quite alarmed about terrorism. But over the next few years, the questions were asked and uh, there was a distinct decline in concern about terrorism. So what's different about this is that this this terrorism, which has seemed to be linked to some sort of rather spooky international conspiracy, uh, has that as an important quality. It's not domestic terrorism. It's not terrorism per se, but it's uh, international terrorism. And we, When we looked for comparisons, uh, the, we came up with a couple. The best, the best one probably is concern about domestic communists in the United States because they too were sort of invisible. You can't really see them. Uh, you can't pick them out. You can't, you can't predict what they're going to do. They're dedicated to an international movement which has as its goal of ultimately revolution and overthrowing the government. Uh, And so they're kind of spooky too. Um, uh, They're all part—and it's not clear exactly where the center of all this conspiracy is. Uh, And um, when you look at public opinion on on, on, terror—on concern about domestic communists, domestic communists, now that's not the Cold War, but the domestic communists, there is very little change from the height of the McCarthy period for another 10 or even 20 years. Even though in that case— there was virtually nothing going on. There were no big cases. There was no case of a terrorist blowing up a – I mean a communist terrorist blowing up a uh, defense factory or something like that. Uh, so there was no, there was very few few real reminders. Nonetheless, despite that fact, um, the terrorism didn't uh, – a concern about uh, domestic communists did not really erode very much, certainly for 10 years and to a considerable degree for two, uh, 20 years after the – Height of McCarthyism, say 1954 or so, and the other comparison is which is the ultimate um, spooky foreign adversary, which is the devil. Um, and uh, the devil, of course, it was is is, is uh, said to have had in his uh, sway a bunch of witches, people in uh, your country who look just like normal women. Usually somewhat old and maybe a bit cranky but nonetheless um, uh, you can't really necessarily tell which one is a, which and which is not. Um, and uh, there was uh, the, between about, about uh, 1480 and about 1680 in, the, in Europe in particular, there was the witch craze in which uh, uh, tens of thousands of women, particularly sometimes men but mostly women were executed. And there seems to have been very little uh, decline. There's no public opinion polls, of course, uh, but uh, there's no. Uh, it, doesn't, it, it took a long time for that fear to attenuate, maybe 200 years. So that's that's. The, and if, you know, the ultimate spook, obviously, is the devil, uh, and the handmaidens of the devil were these people who are living among you, just like terrorists or just like domestic communists, uh, and they're dedicated to evil. And their and their and their their loyalties are something that's international and rather spooky
0: in scope. Do people view uh, terrorism uh, as, I guess, a different categories of terrorism, That is to say, Timothy McVeigh uh, might have been viewed very differently from the 9/ eleven hijackers based upon what Americans thought their aims were?
1: Yes, um, you could argue that Timothy Covey wanted to overthrow the government. I mean, in fact, that's pretty much what he would have said. <laughs> in other words, the right-wing uh, m- Michigan militia types, you know, the, uh, that uh, he was sort of part of, uh, were extremely hostile to the government of the United States and were willing to use violence, to, in some, some, some of them at least, uh, to try to bring it down. So they did have a, um, you know, an, you know, an existential goal, you might say. Uh, but the fears of them seem to be much more limited. There was a lot of terrorism in the United States in the 1950s and 1960s, but it was basically uh, very much uh, domestic, including some of the anti-Vietnam uh, material uh, movement. You know the Weathermen and some of their incarnations. Um, but that that basically sort of faded away. People, you know, people have to go back and remind people. <laughs> that uh, that was the case, which is what I'm doing right now. So there's been a lot of terrorism around. Um, uh, uh, numbers of people, you know, uh, a considerable number of people were killed, not huge numbers, but uh, it's certainly comparable to the number of people who've been killed by Islamist terrorists uh, since 9-11 in the United States. Uh, but uh, people sort of brushed that aside and it went away. So it has something to do with, you know, even even Timothy McVeigh, who was tied to a movement of sorts, identified with the movement certainly in the United States and he obviously wanted to get revenge for what he felt was government encroachments on his uh, thinking or way of life or his people, the people he identified with and killed you know 200 people or so uh, with the explosion in 1995. Even he doesn't seem to uh, – that's, that's, not, that's not the same thing as a spooky international conspiracy as far as we were able to see. He's not up there with the devil. He's not up there with Osama bin Laden.
0: So what explains the the persistence of this uh, concern, at least self-reported concern about terrorism? You and I have talked before about uh, what you called uh, the self-licking ice cream cone, which is uh, agencies that are in the business of not just dealing with a threat, but in some cases also sort of ginning it up.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that's the other part of the, uh, the Cato paper we deal with is, which is counterterrorism policy. Um, uh, one of the things that you, could, you could certainly say, if you know the data certainly support the following, is that although the United States has spent a billion a trillion dollars, well over a trillion dollars on domestic counterterrorism policy, uh, you know, uh, the TSA and, and, and the Department of Homeland Security and uh, uh, various protective and policing measures um, spent a huge amounts of money. And one of the main reasons was that to reassure people and make them feel safe that clearly in the case of terrorism has failed, abjectly failed uh, this, the, all, the, all, these, all these expenditures. Um, and so in many respects, you know, we, we sort of conclude that if people want to be afraid, nothing will stop them. Uh, and it 's not clear that any kind of t- counterterrorism policy can do much about it, uh, and so we sort of argue that uh, care- counter terrorism people should be spending money responsibly uh, if they could actually reduce the fear by their expenditures, that might be a public good in other words even un- even if the fear is not justified um, quantitatively at least um, if you can if you can reduce people 's unjustified fears. Uh, that's a good thing. It makes them feel better, and it's a pub, you know it's a public good. But clearly, that's not happening. The fears remain basically where they were after uh, at the time of 9/11. Uh, so, consequently, the policy can't reduce people's anguish, um, and so therefore, since you you can't reduce their anguish, what you should be doing is something that's rational, which is spending the money, which in a manner that best Reduces um, life uh, improves uh, life's safety. Uh, whether it whether it affects public opinion one way or the other, uh, so they're in some sense free to do this. Uh, the other aspect, though, of, of it is that uh, pretty much what we see is not it's not opinion leadership at all. It's the leaders are following the public. Um, they realize and they think that if they do something wrong, bad, um, uh, you know that, that that they'll be cashiered later. Uh, by public opinion or by the voters or by um, the taxpayers or something like that uh, or by inquests or whatever. Um, so consequently, uh, even if they are doing a good job in some respects, uh, they have to pretend that they're assuaging these fears and uh, they also uh, um, exacerbate them. But I, 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 the, um, the thing about uh, communism is good in that respect. Because although they're – you know, public officials are all anti-communist and stuff like that, um, there was not much in the way of real hysteria uh, in terms of public pronouncements after the 50s in particular. People went on to other things because there wasn't anything happening. It wasn't like, you know, somebody blowing up a defense factory someplace, as I mentioned. Uh, And uh, so uh, uh, it isn't the incidence of the thing happening and it isn't the – Degree to which the public officials hype the threat that's causing the fear, the fear is there regardless. Or another way of putting it, if if the public officials did start speaking responsibly, uh, to a degree like Obama did for a while, there, um, it wouldn't make much difference one way or the other. Um, so they can't they can't lower the fears even if they consider them unjustified. If they do consider them justified, uh, they're playing to the they, they can they continue to play to the fears.
0: Is there any way to align the incentives of these agencies that are charged with both dealing with threats and assuaging fears, which are, you know, often different things? Um, is there any way to get their incentives aligned properly with respect to uh, the true threat of terrorism?
1: Well, I've been I've been working on it for, you know, since 9-11, <laughs> uh, you know, nearly 20 years now. and. Um, It seems to be a hopeless uh, kind of situation. Um, What happens for many uh, issues of safety is that you're required to do a sensible cost benefit analysis. If, for example, you decide maybe it would be a good idea to require seat belts in the back seats of cars. Well, you have to do an analysis. You have to say how many lives would be likely to be saved, how much did the belts cost, you know, what does it cost to retrofit cars and so forth, whatever whatever it would be, um, and and then your analysis is looked at. Uh, for the most part, and very you know, vast majority part, uh, they have not done that with Homeland Security. And so what we've been trying to do is to say, look, after nine eleven, everybody panicked. Big surprise. You know, of course that happened. Uh, and so it, it was. it's obvious to anybody that a lot of money was thrown at this problem very quickly. So um, after a while, I mean, yeah, that's understandable. It happened in your personal life, happened in your business life, you know. But after a few years, you'd go back and say, you know, I had to look at that money that's thrown at the problem. Some of the money I put, I threw probably really does help. But some of it surely was wasted. It was foolish. And what I should do is go back and reevaluate and perhaps cut overall expenditures or move – certainly move the money from procedures and methods that don't improve the risk, um, improve, uh, reduce the risk uh, from ones that do, do reduce the risk uh, at an acceptable cost. And by and large, that has simply not been done. Uh, there's been virtually no consideration of acceptable risk. I've asked this even of the director, of, one of the directors of the Tra- Transportation Security Administration. Uh, how, how, you know what, what's your goal? Uh, you can't save everybody's life on the airplanes except by closing down the airline industry, and you don't want to do that, right? And I say, yeah, we don't want to do that. Uh, so then I say, well, suppose that uh, uh, getting someone getting on board an airplane has one chance in a million of being killed by a terrorist. Is that acceptable? How about if it's 1 in 10 million? How about if it's 1 in 50 million? How about if it's about 1 in 80 million, which is more or less what it is? Um, And uh, even with 9-11 considered in the calculation, and they basically have no answer to that question. They have never even considered it.
0: John Mueller is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and co-author of Public Opinion and Counterterrorism Policy, available now. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.